Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, U.S. President Barack Obama arrives in Kenya later today and Cameroon tightens security after deadly suicide bombings. In economics, IMF says higher spending will ultimately be good for global growth and in sports news, athletes prepare for the London Diamond League meeting. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. The European Union is ready to impose sanctions on some Burundian leaders for allegedly failing to help end the Central African nation's crisis. The EU says it's preparing to adopt, if necessary, targeted restrictive measures against those whose actions led to acts of violence, repression and serious human rights abuses. This follows elections that the EU and the USA were not credible. Burundi is awaiting the results of Tuesday's vote in which President Pierre Kurunziza ran for a third term, denying that this was unconstitutional. His move has led to weeks of violence and tension in the Central African Republic. U.S. President Barack Obama is expected to arrive in Kenya later today. Obama will attend the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, which the U.S. and Kenya are co-hosting. Kenya is a key Western ally in the fight against terror. Kenya will be looking to the U.S. to help them better secure the country. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta. We have been working in very close collaboration with American agencies in our fight against terror, and I am certain that that is an agenda that we shall further strengthen during this particular meeting, strengthen our partnership, strengthen our cooperation, because it is our common objective to ensure that not only Kenya, but the whole world is free from those who would wish to impose negative views on the rest of society. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees says at least 40 people are feared dead after their boat sank off the coast of Libya. Most of the victims hailed from sub-Saharan African countries, including Somalia, Eritrea, Benin and Mali. International NGO Save the Children says women and children are among those missing. More than 1,900 people have reportedly died while trying to cross the Mediterranean to Europe so far this year. 
A UN Human Rights Committee has urged France to ensure that those responsible for alleged abuses against minors in the Central African Republic are brought to trial. The recommendation is among those issued by the committee, which has just finished assessing how the French state and six other UN member nations apply international human rights law. Daniel Dickinson has more. In its concluding observations on France, the UN's Human Rights Committee said it had raised the issue of allegations of sexual abuse of minors by French soldiers in the Central African Republic. The claims relate to French troops sent to the CAR to help African Union peacekeepers in 2013 and 14. In response, the French delegation had indicated that the matter was being taken seriously and that an investigation was underway. Nigeria marks its first year without a single case of polio. The country could soon come off the list of countries where polio is endemic. Nigeria's polio-free period dating from July 24th last year is the longest it has gone without recording a case. Nigeria had struggled to contain polio since some northern states imposed a year-long vaccine ban in mid-2003. And finally, a gunman has shot dead at least three people and injured seven others at a movie theater in the U.S. state of Louisiana. U.S. authorities say the incident happened during a showing of the film train wreck. One of those killed was the gunman who's reported to have turned the weapon on himself. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Friday, July the 24th, the 205th day of 2015, with 160 days left in the year. U.S. President Barack Obama arrives in Kenya today. Expectations are high in the land of his father that he will come to the East African nation with good tidings. Our Nairobi correspondent Sarah Kimani takes a look at what Kenyans want from Obama's visit. On Friday, Kenya welcomes a man they fondly refer to as their son, U.S. President Barack Obama. Nairobi streets have a fresh coat of paint. Billboards compete for the most strategic point, each welcoming Obama home. Newspaper headlines scream the reminder that his journey to the highest office in the world began here in Kenya. In Nairobi, the excitement is palpable. I welcome the move for him to come. Uh, not just because of the conference, but because this is his father's land, so he's most welcome. And uh, uh, I hope by his coming, you know he has been here before, his father is from this country, so I hope he's coming with some goodies. Uh, I cannot comment that he has done a lot of things. We have been waiting him for a, lot, a long time. He has never came, but we have to thank the Lord because now he has remembered his country, his mother country. Obama will be in Kenya to attend the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, which the U.S. and Kenya are co-hosting. Kenya is taking it as a global recognition for her economy. Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta, says the troops should help strengthen ties between the two countries. We're very keen and hopeful that some of the few pending issues uh, that uh, remain uh, 
uh, outstanding uh, will be resolved so that we can get the Cat 1 status that is necessary for us to be able to have direct flights between um, Kenya and the United States. Both countries have been keen to see us uh, re-establish direct flights between our two countries because clearly direct flights go a long way towards easing business and movement of both goods, uh, the kind of um, exports that we also want to do, the movement of business people, the movement of tourists, direct flights. In Nairobi, Obama will give a speech at a stadium to thousands of Kenyans, although he is here seeking to strengthen trade and economic ties as well as security ties between the U.S. and Kenya, it will not be lost on Kenyans that he is on the home soil of his father, the late Barack Obama Sr. James Shikwati is a Kenyan economist. He actually gave Africans the responsibility to take charge of their destiny. When he was talking about, you know, we need uh, a new breed of leadership, a new focus, instead of always complaining that, uh, you know, other people are missing Africa and therefore we should always be crying. So if we compare with uh, maybe the previous American presidents, I think his style is that of, you know, pointing you to something. Kenya is a key Western ally in the fight against terror. Kenya will be looking to the U.S. to help it better secure the country. We have been working in very close collaboration with American agencies in our fight against terror, and I am certain that that is an agenda that we shall further strengthen during this particular meeting, strengthen our partnership, strengthen our cooperation, because it is our common objective to ensure that not only Kenya, but the whole world is free from those who would wish to impose negative views on the rest of society. At least 500 people have been killed in terror-related attacks in the last four years, and the country's tourism industry is on its knees. Mwandu Ambijiwe is a security analyst. We should know that even if uh, our investors, our investors uh, will be coming to Kenya, I'm sure the first thing that they're going to look at is security of their investment. So security should be the first agenda, and uh, Obama coming to Kenya we believe that uh, things like uh, sharing intelligence, equipping our security organs, um, retraining our security guys should be first priority. And uh, Obama being, uh, the way we put it, like he's being our son, we believe that even if, uh, even after his retirement, probably one time he won't come back uh, to his home. He should be coming back home confident that he's secure. His father's village of Kogelo will, however, be disappointed as a U.S. head of state will skip it during the tour. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. More than 5,000 members of Kenya's Liberal Party and anti-gay groups have vowed to demonstrate naked on the streets of Nairobi if U.S. President Barack Obama deviates from his speech on the business summit and alludes to issues of gays and lesbians. Already, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has said his government cannot tell Obama what to say and what not to say when the U.S. leader speaks at the global Nairobi business summit. James Shimangula has more. The 5,000 demonstrators are to be led by the leader of Kenya's Liberal Party, Vincent Kidaha, who discloses the number of participants in the demonstration against United States President Obama if he speaks about homosexuality in the Nairobi Business Summit. 5,000 members of the Republican Liberty Party voluntarily 
accepted and without being coerced, accepted to undress themselves and walk in the street of Nairobi so that Obama can be easily identify and see when you come to Africa, don't advocate such vices. Are you using this as a political tool to enhance your political group? We are not using this as a political tool. I we began this back in 2013. And that particular day, nobody knew even in Kenya that one time Obama will visit Kenya during his tenure as the president. And that is why, to that effect, 2014, we drafted a bill and we dubbed that bill the Kenya Anti-Homosexuality Bill. What message will that parade send to Kenyans who think it's a taboo to undress in the public and the international community. The strong message we are sending to Africans, to the people of the world, is that we don't want the aid to, 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 to have condition that we must accept bad vices into our land so that they can give us aid. That is why we are saying we will walk naked to showcase that Africans, we can be patient and renovate gradually. You know very well, Vincent, that uh, undressing is what they call indecent exposure. Don't you see that uh, this is a crime under the Kenya Penal Code and that police may arrest you on the spot? We don't think the police may arrest us because we have notified them and given them enough time and they have alluded to our notification by accepting our notification. So if in case there will be any arrest, that particular officer will deal with him as an individual because as per the law, the law says every Kenyan has got right to peacefully and unarmed to demonstrate and to picket. Also expected to join the demonstrators is Livingstone Oyugi, Kidaha's deputy. Oyugi discloses what motivated him to walk naked. What motivated me to get into the demo, which will make people to walk naked, is to let the world and African leaders and African countries know that there is a difference between a man and a woman. We are not happy especially we Africans, when the whites are putting things on us. We want to tell Obama publicly that we are not supporting this. If he is a true son of Africa, we are telling the White House to declare before Obama arrives that Obama will not talk anything about Gaiism and we can stop our demo. Without informing the world that when he travels to Kenya, he will not talk about the issue, we will continue with our demonstration and we will be naked in the street. Adding his voice to the plan to demonstrate is Zainabu Kaleke Chizunga, member of parliament for Kwale County in Kenya's coast region. Obama, if you come to Kenya, please don't comment on gazing because that is where the, the, the border contention is and it will spoil your visit in Kenya. Please come and talk to Kenyans on matters which are beneficial, not on such a matters which are not beneficial to this region. But David Mbotekuria, one of Kenya's renowned gay, maintains that Obama has the right to speak about rights of gays and lesbians. We should talk about equality for all, including people who are gay and lesbians. He should talk about human rights. He should talk about equality and non-discrimination for all people in Kenya. Equality cuts across different spectrums, including sexual orientation. I don't think he should make a choice of speaking about certain things or certain aspects of human rights and not other. That was David Mbote Kuria, one of Kenya's renowned gays, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. 
It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 2007. Five Bulgarian nurses and a Palestinian doctor return home after secretive talks lead to their release by Libya after eight and a half years in prison, much of it under sentence of death for widely rejected charges of infecting children with HIV. That was Today in History in 2007. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Security is being heightened in northern Cameroon following Wednesday's double suicide bomb attack on the capital of the far north region of the country that left dozens dead. Cameroon says the two suicide bombers included a woman who came into the country from Nigeria as a merchant and a nine-year-old girl disguised as a burger. A beggar. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. Medical staff here at the Marwa Regional Hospital are attending to 50 people wounded in the double suicide bombings on the town's main market and Bamari, a popular neighborhood. Yunusa Abo has a fracture on his left leg. J'ai vu le feu. Après quelques temps, c'est comme un attentat. Alors, bon, c'est ça que je suis en train de créer sur la route. He says he saw fire and told himself it was an attack, so he started crying and shouting until the company commander of the military came. He said the company commander asked what was wrong, and he said there was an explosion by them, so he called for help and people came and helped them and took them to the hospital. Ninety percent of goods sold in the market are brought from Nigeria, less than a hundred kilometers from Marwa. Businessman Mohamedou Abo says it is possible the bombs were hidden in the goods and transported to Marwa before the suicide bombers used them. He says the market should be sealed and searched. La première fois il y a eu une explosion, on a cru que c'était un pneu qui était classé, qui s'est éclaté. He says when they heard the first explosion, they had an impression it was a tire puncture, and then they got the second louder explosion that shook the whole market. He says everybody started running to different directions, and when he got to the scene, he saw a macabre incident. On a trouvé vraiment c'était macabre, macabre, incroyable. Governor Mijiyawa Bakari of Far North Cameroon says parts of Cameroon's border with Nigeria have been sealed and there will be systematic control of all vehicles, people and goods. Nous avons également instruit tous les éléments de force de l'ordre de défense à l'effet de doubler de vigilance. He says he has asked the military to be more vigilant and vigorous while checking vehicles and their goods. He says all suspected markets, shops, bars and popular spots have been sealed 
and that he has received instructions from Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, to seal parts of Cameroon's borders with Nigeria, where they suspect Boko Haram suicide bombers and fighters can infiltrate. Less than two weeks ago, Midiya Wabakari banned women from wearing Boka veils after female suicide bombers used them to conceal explosives in protocol on Cameroon's border with Nigeria's Borno State, former stronghold of the Boko Haram terrorist group. This week's attack was still carried out by female suicide bombers, one disguised as a merchant and the other a nine-year-old girl disguised as a beggar. Midiawa Bakari says more than a dozen died, but residents estimate at least 24 were killed. The governor says they are still battling to save the lives of victims. Early this year, the Nigerian-based Boko Haram announced its allegiance to the Islamic State group. The attack in Marwa is the fourth in two weeks after protocol. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sunrise, le soleil élevé. Weya, wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, du melang, san bonani. Africa, mulishani, mulibwanji. Africa, en yomi, kilon shele. Africa, ndinkim, kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The United Nations Working Group says as many as 20,000 foreign combatants from 80 countries are fighting in Syria, Iraq and other conflict areas. The group says while most of these fighters are motivated by ideological reasons, some are also paid for their services. Member of the working group which met this week at UN headquarters in New York, Gabor Rona, earlier spoke about the human rights implications posed by foreign fighters in conflict areas and in their home countries. When individuals go fight in foreign conflicts, they are prone to committing the same kinds of human rights violations that occur in any kind of armed conflict. These would include the targeting of civilians, which is a violation of international law. Uh, It would include mistreatment of detainees torture. But in addition, the fact that an individual is a foreign fighter, in other words, foreign to the locale in which the conflict is taking place, may very well mean that that individual has less of a stake than local people do in peaceful outcomes and may be more prone to committing human rights violations. And now for your meeting, what do you hope will be the outcome? I mean, are you wanting to put pressure on home countries that are the sending countries of these foreign fighters or the receiving countries where they're fighting? Well, both sending countries and receiving countries. And there are quite a number of things that we think states can and should be doing 
in addition to what they're doing already. Part of the problem, though, is not just the human rights violations committed by foreign fighters. It's also the human rights violations that states commit in their reaction to terrorism generally and foreign fighters in particular. So there are things that states can do. They can tighten their border controls. They can uh, increase their surveillance. Uh, they can presumably take passports away from people that are suspected of sympathizing with extremist groups. And all of these things may have a role, but they also in and of themselves create the risk of human rights violations. After all, international human rights law protects people's right, freedom of association, freedom to travel, uh, freedom to engage in the political process. And states have to be very careful to calibrate their reactions to terrorism generally and the foreign fighter phenomenon in particular in ways that address the problem but do not trample on people's human rights. And that's a huge challenge. It's, yeah. a challenge, it, it's a challenge that I think, though, can be met. And what states can do a better job of is reducing or removing the conditions that are conducive to people joining up with these foreign fighting efforts in the first place. And how can they do that? Well, that's the tough question because we're talking about some really fundamental societal problems. Lack of education, poverty, social disaffection. But any effort in any aspect of counterterrorism that does not look at these fundamental societal problems is bound to fail. And the message that we would like to bring to states is that while border controls, prosecution, preventing people from traveling are all things that have potential roles in any counterterrorism effort, if that's all that states are doing, then they're missing the boat, and they're missing the boat in a way that harms people's human rights rather than promotes them. That was Gabor Rona, member of the United Nations Working Group, speaking to UN Radio's Diane Penn. Now, the United Nations has called for a government of national unity in Burundi following elections described as not credible by the EU. Current President Pierre Nkuruziza ran for a third term, breaking the two-term limit agreed under the Arusha Peace Accord a decade ago. Final results are expected sometime today. The mounting violence across Burundi has also provoked a widespread humanitarian crisis as refugees have spilled across the country's borders and fanned throughout the region. Now, our question to you today is, do you think a government of national unity will solve the political crisis in Burundi? Give us your thoughts and your views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa One. Do you think a government of national unity will solve the political crisis in Burundi? Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
It's 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Botswana Court of Appeal has reserved judgment on government's appeal against a high court ruling to provide foreign prisoners with ARVs. The matter also involves an HIV-positive Zimbabwean prisoner who is demanding to be released due to the failure of government to provide ARVs. Sintle Inglihihi reports from Khaburoni. In the latest matter... Gift Mwale, a Zimbabwean national who is serving a 10-year sentence, is demanding to be released from Botswana prison cells because his family can no longer afford to buy him ARVs. Mwale's application comes at a time when foreign inmates are waiting to hear whether or not they will be provided with free ARVs. The Botswana government maintains it cannot afford to provide foreign inmates with ARVs due to budget constraints. State Attorney Chuchuchunchunga. Basically, we believe that we have a strong case. I believe there is no country in the world which is able to provide for 100% health services for all its citizens. So what more of non-citizens? I believe that argument is strong enough. Even in first world countries, they are not able to provide health services for all their citizens. However, the Botswana government has been accused of not providing evidence to substantiate their claim. Human rights activists and lawyers representing the foreign inmates who brought the matter to court say it is more costly to treat opportunistic diseases than provide ARVs. Legal advisor at human rights NGO, Bonella Kikantsepile, says this is an infringement on the prisoner's right to life. But we can also not take away the right to life. And that if your uh, movement is limited to, to prison, then the state is really has a duty of care towards a foreign inmate. The Southern African Litigation Center says the Botswana Presidential Directive of 2004, which says that foreign prisoners who are HIV positive are not eligible to HIV treatment, is additional punishment and discriminatory. The center's Annabel Raw elaborates. In the Southern Africa region, this is quite a unique case where there is an explicit policy by government to discriminate between prisoners um, on the basis of their nationality. Botswana, despite being a small country and having a relatively small prison population in total, has a high percentage of foreign prisoners. And so the, the failure to, to treat these prisoners' medical needs, particularly when they're as urgent as, as providing antiretroviral treatment, is something very serious. There are currently over 2,000 foreign prisoners in Botswana's prisons. I am Sintle Inglihihi in Khaburone, Botswana. This is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. The European Union ready to impose sanctions on some Burundian leaders for allegedly failing to help end the Central African nation's crisis. U.S. President Barack Obama expected to arrive in Kenya later today. He will attend the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, which the U.S. and Kenya are co-hosting. And a UN Human Rights Committee urges France to ensure those responsible for alleged abuse against minors in the Central African Republic are brought to book. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. South Africa's ruling party members in the ad hoc committee on Gandla have lambasted public protector Tulima Donsela for her report on Gandla, saying she has misled the public and tarnished the image of government. Madonsela found that President Zuma and his family gained undue benefits during the more than 200 million rand security upgrades at his Gandla home. She recommended that he pays back a portion of the money spent on non-security upgrades. Committee members deliberated on what they saw at President Zuma's Ngandla residence during their in-local inspection on Wednesday. Meanwhile, ANC members also rejected calls by opposition parties to have President Zuma and the public protector appear before the committee. Zanele Butelezi reports. Members of the ad hoc committee voiced their frustration, saying the state was defrauded in the Ngandla project. From the crowd to the swimming pool, nothing is worth more than the 200 million rents that was paid for the work. There is no security at all. The visitor centre is essentially a constituency office. I'm embarrassed to see. I don't think that I feel comfortable with the state president hosting other state presidents in such a facility. It makes us look like a banana republic. But ANC members went further to say President Zuma is not secure in comfort, as claimed in the public protector's report on Ganda. ANC MP Tandi Mohamed Lala accused Madonzela of misleading South Africans and tarnishing the image of the government in her reports on Gandla. The president was labelled, called so many uh, words that you might find in the world, corrupt, as if, you know, you name them. Confidently so, without any basis, we called him names, based on the report which misled South Africa. And some of our people were clapping hands for this report, and today they are melting. Defending Madonzela, members of opposition parties objected to these accusations. The DA's John Steen Hazen says she must be called to respond to the differences that the Minister of Police, Natin Tlego, has found in his report, and to also engage those who accuse her of misleading the public. But the ANC's Mamoloko Kubai disagrees. I can see what the tactic here is. It's to shut this down as quickly as possible, not bring players here before this committee who are not in the control of, uh, of Latuli House and of the presidency. Yes, as much as Honorable Steinhazen, you are saying you don't want people who are counted to Latuli to, to, to come here. I equally don't want to see people who are counted to Lievenhof coming here. 
The question is who should be held accountable for the Nganla controversy. The ANC says the officials and contractors, but the opposition says politicians are also to blame, including President Zuma. The ACDP Stephen Swartz says a 2009 memorandum to public works referring to President Zuma giving an instruction for police houses to be converted as part of his household is evidence that he was aware of what was happening. Ahang's Andreas Loama says the fact that the principal architect, Minente Makanya, was introduced to the public works department by the Zuma family links him directly to the president. Exonerating the president, it will be very wrong. The money that we lost in Nkandla must be recovered as a matter of agency. That the president does not have to repay $246 million. But that does not mean that he doesn't have to repay an amount. And it's not a large amount. They also want him to appear before the committee. But the ANC's Matole Motsecha says there's no need to call President Zuma. I don't know what he will be coming to do because uh, if uh, government instructed people to do something for him and those people go and rip off the public and the taxpayer, how how does the president come into the whole thing? Uh, So uh, I think that uh, let's disabuse ourselves from that idea unless we just want to politic. The chairperson of the committee, Cedric Froelich, believes the visits to Guazulu Natal has been useful. I think the committee is empowered to make those decisions that is needed to be made and to ensure that we move towards bringing this matter to closure. It's the third ad hoc committee that we are sitting in and we cannot perpetually continue the creation of new ad hoc committees. He says Police Minister Natin Tlego and Public Works Minister Tulas Ngesi have availed themselves to appear before the committee next week. However, the Freedom Front Plus's Corneille Murder says the list of witnesses should not only be limited to these ministers, calling for others such as the former ministers of public works, Jeff Deutsch and Gwen Mashangu, to be included. The committee is expected to report back to the National Assembly on the 7th of August. Zanele Buselezi, Peter Maritzburg. South African MPs have called on the European Union to reconsider its decision to reduce its assistance to South Africa. It has emerged that an interparliamentary meeting of South Africa and the European Union that the EU is to cut help by up to 70%. Joseph Masia reports. The South Africa-European Parliament interparliamentary meeting is held annually to discuss issues of mutual concern. On the agenda this time around are topics like the National Development Plan, immigration and the assistance that the EU gives to South Africa. European Union Ambassador to South Africa, Rulan van der Heer, told members that the EU and South Africa have recently signed a cooperation agreement. We have concluded an agreement for the coming uh, seven years, and as Mr. van Baalen indicated, it's a reduced budget, uh, but the budget has been discussed in detail between the South African government and the European Union, and uh, I think we are all in, in agreement. Of course, all those directly working on South Africa would have liked to see the budget um, higher. That, that's a very human thing. But uh, Treasury and Durko are both convinced that with the current budget we will be able to run a, a, a very productive uh, program. But MPs thought the reduction in funding will compromise many of the projects that were being supported. They said South Africa is not a developed country and that it cannot fund some of the projects on its own. 
Peggy Khatebe is a South African member of parliament. I'll appeal to your good selves that when you go back, you appeal to the powers that be in the EU that they really reconsider that and see the dynamics of South Africa inside the country. Because when you speak about poverty, it is very clear. You know that the, the people who are usually poor, they come from the rural areas. The rural areas, there are less services there. So what happens is that as a country, we don't have that capacity to uplift all these people at a goal. So the support which you had all these years will really be appreciated. Deputy Speaker Lechisa Tenudi explained the importance of the National Development Plan. The significance of long-term planning cannot be underestimated. But it also offers the possibility to work across a variety of departments to be able to achieve uh, these goals uh, for which we have set up. Essentially to improve the quality of life of all South Africans. That's the central vision. And to do that, we obviously have to eliminate the levels of poverty that still bedevils our country today and the rising inequality. The leader of the European delegation, Hans Balen, cautioned that South Africa needs to avoid some of the pitfalls that come along with long-term planning. He said in his own country they had learned this the hard way. I've seen a lot of planning failing. Even if I look at my own country, the north of the Netherlands is not big, is not widely populated, and the government in the 60s thought we will build a new harbour, a new harbour which will create employment, etc. It only forgot, after all the infrastructure has been built and paid by the government, that private enterprise was not interested because they said we already have Rotterdam and Amsterdam. So we, we, and there are no skilled laborers in the north of the country. So we have to take people from Rotterdam and Amsterdam to the north. But another European MP, Boris Zala from the Alliance for Liberals and Democrats for Europe, praised the NDP and said it should be implemented. I hope that South Africa will implement this plan because it's a good plan. The problem is what can you do in short term? Because I would like to quote what your general statistician in South Africa said not long time ago. He said like this, the numbers are saying something has to be done and done quickly. I think the plan is good and you should implement it. The meeting continues today and discussions will include challenges in many African countries. I'm Joseph Musia in Parliament. It's 8.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Zimbabwean company Per Lusulu Power on Thursday signed a multi-million dollar agreement with the China State Construction Engineering Corporation to build a 600 megawatt thermal power plant, a move expected to ease power cuts in the country. Simon Muchemwa has more from Harare. Power shortages will be a thing of the past in Zimbabwe as from 2019 following a 4.5 billion US dollar power investment deal between China and Zimbabwe. The deal between Zimbabwean Pay Lusulu Power and Chinese State Construction Engineering will see the company producing a total of 2,000 megawatts of electricity at completion. According to Pei Lisulu Power, the deal entails developing the four core mines, roads, power generation plants, and power lines. 
The investment deal will also see a new town being constructed for at least 10,000 families in the area, although the power generation plant will employ at least 1,000 people. Following completion of the proposed project, Zimbabwe will be able to generate excess power for export in the region as the country will now have surplus. Currently, Zimbabwe has a power demand of 2,100 megawatts per day, although the country is only able to produce 900 megawatts. This has resulted in serious power outages affecting the industry. According to Stuart Perry, chairperson of the Pay Lusulu Power, the first phase will start in 2016. We're very anxious that this project gets moving as fast as possible. We intend to start on site early next year. The first phase of 600 megawatts should be completed in 2019, the first part of 2019. Uh, and then the follow-on of the rest of the phases will commence after that. Zimbabwe Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa embraced the deal saying a lot of development is expected within the Binga area because of the new power deal. In total, overall, the project is to develop 2,000 megawatts of power and they are going to use coal concessions which are found in the area. As a matter of fact, this project is in the Binga area and uh, it is very important for the development of the Binga area both in terms of this project but also in terms of tourism. There is expected to be huge development of infrastructure in and around this plant and so it is something that since I came in I've been encouraging including making approaches to the financiers in the People's Republic of China. China State Construction Engineering so far is the first foreign company to invest such a huge amount of money in an ailing Zimbabwean economy. Yuang Cheng Biao, general manager of the Eastern and Southern African Division, was happy to support the Zimbabwean project. Uh, we believe with the support from the Zimbabwe government and also with the participation of the world's largest construction company, CICC, and also the great team from uh, PER, the project, the Pelusulu Park Station project, will be a great success. Thank you. Currently, Zimbabwe is importing most of its power from neighboring countries such that the new Binga project is seen as a catalyst for industrial development in the country in the near future. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Luhuku.
Burundian businesses are moving from the capital Bujumbura to other parts of the country following the violent unrest in the central market of Bujumbura. Prior to the central market burning, this type of businesses was not common in the city districts. An owner of a retail store specializing in women's clothes decided to move a business to central Bujumbura in Buiza, where she says a business is lucrative there. The lady says that in town, it is very expensive to rent space in order to run a business. However, she says outside the center, it is cheap and it is possible to pay her bond and have a little money left over to live from. A new paper published by the International Monetary Fund suggests that higher spending will ultimately be good for global growth. This after crude oil prices became half of what they were a year ago, interpreting a significant loss in revenue for some oil exporting countries. Co-author and deputy director in the Middle East and Central Asia Department of the IMF, Aysim Hussein. So oil prices or the decline in oil prices is uh, certainly benefiting consumers, but not as much as you might have uh, thought initially and certainly not as much as I initially thought. Even though crude oil prices fell by about half between, say, June of last year and and by the end of the year, early this year, retail prices of uh, fuel prices on average globally have fallen by half as much. South Africa's largest trade federation, Kusatu, says it's not surprised by union NUMSA's decision to form a new labor federation. NUMSA earlier announced it would go alone after its allies within Kusatu were defeated at last week's special national congress in Johannesburg. NUMSA is planning a workers' summit at the end of October to bring together unions within and outside Kusatu. Kusatu's president is Dumozameni. Kusatu shall not undermine. Uh, such a formation and believe that uh, it's a, a non-event. We think that uh, we have to focus on building a stronger COSATU so that no formation of any federation can then be a threat to COSATU. Our, our focus will be purely, purely on COSATU other than being worried about people who are forming a, a new federation further dividing workers in South Africa. The world's first malaria vaccine has received a green light from European drugs regulators. They are recommending that it be licensed for use in babies in Africa at risk of the mosquito-borne disease. The shot, called Mosquito Rex and developed by British drug maker GlaxoSmithKline in partnership with Path Malaria Vaccine Initiative, would be the first licensed human vaccine against a parasitic disease. Recommendations for a drug license made by the European Medicines Agency are normally endorsed by the European Commission within a couple of months. Rwanda's insurance industry continues to suffer big losses due to the persistent price undercutting practices among insurers. The National Bank of Rwanda says many insurance firms under price motor insurance and medical premiums to win clients' advice that has significantly affected the sector's performance. Motor vehicle insurance cover is about 40% of the sector's total underwritten premiums. One US dollar will cost you 1241 in South Africa, 985 in Botswana, 757 in Zambia, 64 British pound, 91 euro. On the commodities market, platinum trades at $971, gold $1082 an ounce, brand crude oil $55.53 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, my name is Tabiso Lohoku. 
Our sports updates up next with Msibudi Makura. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with athletics news, seven South African athletes will compete at the London Diamond League meeting starting tonight and concluding on Saturday. Most of the entrants are using the two-day event as part of their final preparations for next month's IAAF World Athletics Championships in Beijing. Our London-based correspondent, Geshom Nyati, found this report. Only 27 days left before the start of the World Championships in August 22. It will be a big sporting event to crown the best of the best in the world. Part of the South African athletes shortlisted for the global event are in London to put their skills into test against some of the finest athletes drawn from different countries. Athlete of the moment, Wade Vanike, lines up in the 400 meters, possibly with a view to regain his short-lived African record taken away from him by Isaac Makwala of Botswana. Makwala is also in the race to justify himself as the true continental champion over 400 meters. Anaso Chobokdwana, the current leader in the 200 meters Diamond League series, although he has not won a straight event in the series, is inspired to further demonstrate his rising talent. He was an Olympic finalist in 2012 games in London. Making the entire South African contingent are Wenda Nell in the 400 meter hurdles, Javelin thrower Sunet Villion, 3000 meter runner Elroy Jelland, long jumpers Godfrey Hotzomkwena and Zach Fesseri. Meanwhile, Usain Bolt insists he is in good form um, to reclaim the title of the world's fastest sprinter from the controversial American Justin Gatland. The Jamaican, who has failed to fire so far this year, returns to the Olympic Stadium in London to compete in the 100 metres at the anniversary games on Friday night. So for me, uh, I'm not worried about times. Uh, it's all about just getting everything right because if one thing everybody knows, sometimes I struggle through the season. Uh, I remember... 2011, I was really struggling. Uh, when it came to the championship, I was in great form. All that fall started, but the 200 was pretty good. So I think uh, it takes time, and sometimes it takes to getting to the big moment to really get focused and get ready. So I'm just trying to focus on getting everything right. Uh, but I'm sure when I get to the championships, I'll always be ready. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. And should be a good run. On to football news, the inaugural Cape Town Cup gets underway today. Ajax Cape Town along with Portuguese side Sporting Lisbon, Super Sports United and English Premiership side Crystal Palace will be participating in the tournament at the Cape Town Stadium. In the first, ma- in the first match, rather, Super Sports United take on Crystal Palace while Ajax Cape Town take on Sporting Lisbon in the second match. Here's tournament director Justin Sampson talking about the excitement that has built up ahead of the tournament. The tournament, just to give you some background to it, the city of Cape Town obviously has uh, certain assets they need to utilize being the stadium in this case. So from the Cape Town perspective, they want to get marketing out of it. They want to bring tourism, people coming out here. So a lot of what we've been doing is working with those two teams to put packages together. So there, there are uh, followers of both teams coming out to South Africa. And then, as I said, the asset being the, the Cape Town Stadium, they need to use it and put it to good use. And, you know, having a tournament with the quality of these four teams, um, two days of excellent football, uh, arguably it's, you know, after the World Cup, it's probably the biggest soccer tournament with four teams, two of them being international in South Africa since 2010. 
It's on Football News, South Africa's under-20 girls take on Botswana in the second leg of the FIFA under-20 World Cup qualifier this afternoon in Khabarone. Basistana won the first leg 8-1 at home two weeks ago and are favourable to qualify for the next round. If Basistana qualify for the next round, they will face the winners between Zambia as well as Tanzania. And finally, in golf news... Um, Top, uh, three top European players are expected to be among the contenders for the Senior Open Championship presented by Rolex. Colin Montgomery, Michal Angel Yamez and defending champion Bahad Langa face a star-studded field at Sunningdale. Mark Tomkins reports. Montgomery has won three senior majors, including the USPGA earlier this year. It's an impressive new lease of life since turning 50. And given his success rate down the road on a similar course at Wentworth, it's no surprise to know he's the man players feel they have to beat. Langer did beat him by 13 strokes at Royal Porth Call last year, and he's chasing a hat-trick of senior Open titles. He showed his well-being at St Andrews last week, while Jimenez, who's still contending superbly against the younger players on the European tour, has opted to play rather than at his beloved event in Switzerland, so surely he poses a threat. That said, players of the calibre of US Senior Open winner Jeff Maggot, Fred Couples, Tom Lehman, Mark Emera, and the man who made his St Andrews farewell last week, Tom Watson, could all have a major say in the outcome. Pazaya Sports News at the Sars. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. U.S. President Barack Obama arrives in Kenya later today and Cameroon tightens security after deadly suicide bombings. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Jane Matebula, technical producers Fiso Mashejo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Mayway with a song titled Nanan. Be my so good, and I will